Thank you, Sue. Thank you, kids, for playing along with me today. And uh, forgive me if, if my playfulness uh, is in an area that's maybe a sore spot for you and uh, maybe has been a part uh, that where there's been some hurt and this is a topic that's maybe a little tough. Um, but I, I think you'll understand maybe why I took a little more playful route because when I went to go look at uh, what are some of the book titles and subjects out there on friendship, it's very interesting. I, I found titles like uh, Toxic Friendship. Uh, how to break up with your best friend forever. Um, how, uh, let's see, another one, friend or frenemy. And it wasn't about loving your enemies. It was about identifying those people who are friends but act like enemies. Um, what, what's another one? Oh, the friendship crisis. So when I was looking at the titles, I mean, Scaredy Squirrel Makes a Friend was the most pleasant sounding story out there. And uh, so sometimes uh, fictional stories about friendship are a little better than uh, nonfiction stories uh, of, of friendship. You know, I was um, thinking about this topic, and, and it's really been a, a topic that we've been talking about, especially uh, my wife and I, our family and staff uh, over the past several years, and felt like it was time that, that we talk about this and look at it uh, from a biblical viewpoint. But again, Looking at some of the things that our culture and the way that we view friendship is very interesting. Uh, I was looking at an article back in 2012 done by Alex Williams, a, a columnist for the New York Times, and he wrote an article and he titled it uh, Friends of a Certain Age. And the subtitle being, Why is it hard to make friends over 30? Now, uh, he got a flurry of responses from his article, mostly uh, about the age that he identified, uh, and attaching, it, attaching the age to the issue was mainly why he, uh, people were frustrated with him. Uh, but I think, just as you listen to this, immediately don't do what some of his readers did, and exclude yourself and think, well, this isn't for me, this article isn't about me, uh, because you can really learn something from those people that are ahead of you. If you're younger and uh, involved in school and things like that, uh, listen to this, because this is applicable to you. And of course, if you're older, uh, and you get, uh, there might be some things that you look at this a little more discerning-wise. Uh, but why is it hard to make friends over 30? And there was a flurry of responses, and, and there were some, there were a women, of course, that disagreed with him because they felt like he wrote it more from a male perspective on friendship, and, and you know, men are more loners, and so they, they find it harder, or that sort of thing. And uh, even though he cited an even number of women and men in his, in his article, and, and then there were uh, people that agreed uh, that, hey, it is hard to make friends after a certain age in, in different seasons of life. And then others said, no way, it's just as easy as it ever was. And so there's a little bit of, you know, the glass, is it half full or is it half empty? And people responded different ways. But I wanted, wanted you to listen to one of the people Williams interviewed, and at a certain, he said this, he said, at a certain age, you have had your share of wearying or failed friendships. You have to come to grips with the responsibilities of juggling work, family, existing friends, so you become more wary about making yourself emotionally available to new people. You're more keenly aware of your own capacity to disappoint. Wow. And then uh, listen to this. And, and maybe, maybe there's some of us that, that can relate to that. But listen to another person Williams interviewed uh, who kept a point system uh, 
on friends based on a scale of 100. And uh, what she did was uh, if someone didn't return a call, she'd dock off five points uh, of, of that on that friendship scale. If they didn't return a second call, 10 points off. Uh, if they did something annoying or disloyal, five points off. And uh, if they were late to something in the first month of them knowing each other, five points off. And I, I'm just going, wow, I don't know how you would survive uh, in, in, in making any friends that way. Uh, if you had a system like that for evaluating people or evaluating friendships. But I, I think the main point of William's article is that studies show that as people get older, we tend to withdraw from the friends that we already uh, withdraw to the friends that we already have. And, and that circle of friends remaining becomes smaller. So that's in contrast to the time that when uh, we're in the season, we're in school uh, and college years where we are surrounded by potential friends. And it's almost like childhood. You know, everyone's a potential friend. You know, when you're a kid, if somebody else is in your front yard, that's a friend. Let's go play. I mean, if, if there's someone else uh, sucking on a Charms Blow Pop and you like Charms Blow Pop, hey, we're going to be the best of friends because we both like Charms Blow Pops. You know, that's, you know, everyone is a friend when you're a kid. So again, at that age, that's the way things are. But it, it, it's kind of expands into school years and into college years because of these things. There are some basic ingredients that are a part of friendships, and it's basic ingredients that sociologists from the 1950s to the present say are basic ingredients for friendships. One is close proximity. To to have friends, you have to have close proximity to these people. The other thing is that there has to be some sort of, um, what do you call it, spontaneous interaction that happens from time to time. And, and so that, you have to have the potential for that. The third thing is that you have to feel safe to be able to let your guard down to confide in someone. And of course, when we're younger, we, you know, we confide in everybody, in anyone, anywhere. And, and so there's these ingredients that are a little more readily available, especially when you're in school. But that all changes when you graduate and enter the workforce. Think about, I mean, confiding in someone. I mean, when you're in the workplace, things begin to be a little more competitive. What if you confide in somebody uh, something that you're nervous about or you're feeling weak? I mean, that might mean that, well, you may not get that next project or that next job. And so people tend to not confide or appear vulnerable in any way at work. So it's very interesting and things change. And that's what this article was acknowledging. Now, there are other ways and places to make friends in other seasons of life. And it may just take a little more effort than showing up for school. So my question is for us as, as people in the church, people here at Highland, people here in Asheville, I want to ask, how are we doing here? How are we doing in this area of friendship? Are any of us experiencing knowing pains? I want to be known. I want to know somebody. Have there been some wearying or failed friendships that make you hesitant to make yourself available, to be even in proximity with people for friendship, for potential friendship? Do you have some expectations of friends that really just goes into unrealistic realms of scaredy squirrel or the point system lady? 
Are you, are you looking for the perfect friend? Do you have an ideal of friendship that really just crushes other people? Do you feel like the season you're in or the present age is just too difficult and so you doubt that it's possible to maintain a friend that you would actually call a good friend or a best friend? Have you just given up on that idea? Or maybe, maybe are you in a season of transition and it just seems too difficult in a transition time so you're just putting friendship on hold? How long will that transition last? Do you have any guarantees? Wow, there's lots of elements that come into friendship and lots of questions that we face and things that we've experienced, aren't there? You know, I would like to show you a nonfiction story about friendship. A nonfiction story, a true story about friendship. And it's just one example that's found in the Bible. But it's a story that comes from the prophet Samuel. And he was in a time of transition in his life, in fact, it was during a time when the Israelites were saying, hey, we don't want a prophet priest. We don't want a, a relation, direct relationship with God. We, hey, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And uh, so Samuel was dealing with some rejection. And, and one of the things that Samuel writes in his recordings, uh, and I wonder about it as a man who felt rejection from people, he wrote about a friendship in the Bible in, in, in his time. And it's, and it's a story that maybe you're familiar with, but you didn't know all the details to. And uh, during this time, Samuel records the story of David, who is this warrior poet who slays a giant in a critical battle for King Saul. And uh, one of the Israelites who was on the sidelines watching David walk alone down into the valley was another young man who, who was a bit of a, a warrior himself. His name was Jonathan. And, and he observed David going down into that valley, going alone to face this giant. And I kind of wonder if Jonathan thought back to a moment that happened just, just a little bit before this event, another event that Samuel records. Um, Samuel records that Jonathan at one time uh, kind of had this same courage. Uh, the Philistines, they were up, uh, the Israelites were up against the Philistines and the odds were stacked against them. And Jonathan was like, man, we just need to do something. And so he goes out with his armor bearer all by themselves. And mainly because uh, they're, they're one of the few that actually have weapons. And they go uh, to this Philistine outpost that's on top of this cliff. And Jonathan says to his servant, you know what? I think if we climb up here, the Lord will give us this battle. Are you with me? And his armor bearer says, yeah, let's do it. And so he, he climbs up. All of them, there's no army anywhere to back them up or, hey, we'll blow the whistle and, and the rest of the troops will come in. They climb up to the top of this cliff and they beat the pants off the Philistines. And, and, and so there's this moment where uh, I think when Jonathan is watching David walk alone to the valley, he, he sees someone of a kindred spirit, another courageous heart. And, and so when uh, David slays the giant, and comes back and talks with Saul and uh, is finding that he's going to have favor in, in Saul's army and Saul's kingdom. Jonathan, what does he do? Jonathan doesn't get jealous. Jonathan isn't like, well, psh, psh. he had a whole army backing him up to, after he killed that giant. I didn't have anybody. 
I, I, I went out all by myself, and there was no promise of a reward or anything. I, Jonathan didn't show any kind of attitude like that at all. In fact, here's what it said and how Jonathan responded. Jonathan doesn't get jealous like his father Saul, but instead, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his, his belt. And later when Saul's jealousy rises into this murderous anger, David has to flee because Saul believes David will one day seize the, his throne. And even though it was true that David was anointed king, and that was an interruption to the usual way kings and king-making happen. I mean, Jonathan was the son of Saul. That's the trick in this story. And the hitch in this friendship. My dad wants to kill my best friend. My dad hates my best friend. My dad thinks my best friend has no good intentions. Maybe some of you teenagers have had that kind of instance happen with one of your friendships. I don't know. But uh, it was really uncalled for. It was not the right label. Saul was out of place with his jealousy and his anger. And it rises into this murderous anger. And, and even though Jonathan is supposed to inherit the throne next, and off to the side, David has been anointed king by Samuel. Jonathan still maintains his relationship with David. I mean, David is really going to, he's going to take his job away from him. But David and Jonathan are still best friends. In fact, Jonathan tries to be a mediator between David and his dad. And uh, there's one time where it works. And he brings, he brings peace together. And Saul and David have peace for a little bit. But then Saul's jealousy comes back out, tries to kill David again. David has to flee. And so Jonathan intervenes again, says, oh, I, you know, I'm, I've done this before. I'll do it again. I'm going to because you're my best friend. I promised you we're going to be friends forever, best buds forever. And, and, and anyway, it doesn't work. And they, they have to part. David has to flee the kingdom. And uh, as they part, Jonathan and David have a moment where they share and say, we're still friends. We'll always be friends. Even though this is hanging over us, we're always going to be friends. And, and Jonathan says and, and implies, look, I know you're going to be king. So when you become king, would you promise not to do what other Middle Eastern kings do in our culture? Kill off my family? Would you, would you as a friend, let my, my family, my children, my descendants live? And David does, as we learn later on, keep that promise and is good to Jonathan's descendants. But one of the things to catch in this friendship that's recorded and shared in this story is that uh, first, look, look at that part where Jonathan and David, you know, Jonathan gives these things. He gives these gifts to David. It's a sign of his friendship. Um, I don't know if you remember when you were a little kid, did you ever have a best friend that, that maybe you, you gave something that was important to you to them? Say, yeah, you're my bud. You're my friend. Uh, uh, maybe you didn't give it, but maybe you swapped something. 
I know when I was little, I had, I had my G.I. Joe action figure with the helicopter. And then my, my friend across in the apartment up above, uh, he had a $6 million man in the rocket. And so we, we switched. We swapped our gifts. And, and, but, but that was kind of a bud thing, you know? And we were friends. And you do that with friends. You give something valuable. You entrust it to them. And, you know, that still happens today. Still happens today. I, and I think it is a sign, uh, a way to say, I want to be friends. And you are my friend. And I'm going to be a friend. And uh, I think it's a good thing. But, but I think what's behind that is the other thing that's spoken here in the Scriptures. And it says... Uh, and it's, it's the key. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. It's repeated twice that he loved him as himself. And I think this is a little bit opposite of what's happening today in our culture. You know, we have a, instead in our culture, you know, we have a list. And on our list, this is what a good friend will be. This is what a good friend will say. This is what a good friend will do. And, and sometimes that list, those expectations are so demanding that they would crush any human being. No human being could live up to them. And, and, and there's no ordinary human being who could really fulfill those expectations. So Jonathan, instead of making a list and saying, I, I want you to fit my list for a perfect friend, instead of having a point system and, well, David, you did this and you did that, and so it's counting off. And I don't know if I can be your friend anymore. Instead, Jonathan simply chooses to be the kind of friend he hopes for. Now, thinking of this kind of friendship, isn't this what Jesus was describing when he told us and he taught us the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I know that's, that's sometimes hard in our society because there's sometimes when we, we're not sure we like ourselves. But... If you're trying to follow this leap of loving someone as you love yourself, think of it more plainly as Jesus explained it in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, do to others whatever you would like them to do for you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. You know when he says the Law and the Prophets? I mean, that's the first five books of the Bible. Prophets includes, can include the Psalms, which is a poetry, but Psalms and all the prophets. So basically, everything that's written of the, of, of the Bible, that, of his time, to sum it all up, is to do to others what you'd like them to do for you. It's the summation. In, in older times, uh, people in America would call that the golden rule. If you didn't know that, throw that in for extra. The golden rule, yeah. And it was a summation of everything that God desires for us to be and do. So what kind of friend do you hope for? What kind of friend do you hope for? Be that friend to someone. That's what Jonathan did. That's what Jesus taught us to do. This is the friendship test. It's not for others, but it's the test for ourselves. I will be the friend I hope for. Now here's the thing. Now here's the thing with that. You know, we have our internal thing. This is the friend I hope for, and this is the friend I'll be. But remember, I just said that a lot of us have expectations that no normal human being could ever fulfill. You can't fulfill your own list. Your own desires for what you would want to have in a friend, and so you're going to be that. When you attempt to be that for someone else, you'll fail at it. It's true. You can, you can put it to the test and try it. 
You can't fulfill your own hopes and your own desires for friendship. No matter how noble, true, right, pure, lovely, excellent, or praiseworthy your ideal of friendship is, when you attempt to be that, you will fail. Your own expectations, you won't be able to meet yourself. You will fail. We often fail the friendship test. Is failure fatal? No, it is not. I want you to answer that question out loud. Is failure fatal? No, No, it is not. So do we just settle for failure and give up on this noble idea of friendship? No, we do not. We do not. In fact, for believers, our failure causes us to turn to Jesus. And when we turn to him, we see the perfect friend. I mean, he's always present. He understands us completely because he's all-knowing. And he carries our burdens with us. Take my yoke upon you. He, 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 says he comforts us. Even the name, one of his names is Comforter. He doesn't uh, coddle us in our weaknesses and our sin, but instead exhorts us and tells us, do what's right. I mean, he is the friend that we cannot be. And the good news of the gospel tells us that we are not only forgiven for our failures when we confess, but when we turn to Jesus Christ as Lord, saying that we're second and he's first, he comes to dwell within us. By faith, Christ lives within us. We can't be that friend to others, but you know what? Jesus in us can allow us to be that friend. The perfect friend is with us. The perfect friend lives within us to show us how to be the friend we can't be on our own. The expectations that we have for the perfect friend don't have to crush the people around us when we put our hope in our friend Jesus Christ. And with his help, we can be the friend we can't be on our own. So if you're still puzzling on this, just just maybe go to the Sermon on the Mount. And you can just begin there looking at some of the things that he said at the beginning about doing, do, others, do to others what you'd like them to do for you. How does that work when, when I fail all the time? Well, and, and if I'm struggling with even loving myself, how do I do that? Look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. There's, these, there's a few words that Jesus said, and they're called the Beatitudes. And just think, if I want to be a good friend, then I will be these attitudes. Again, the situation is with this is that being these things, we can't do on our own. So again, the gospel is imperative on this, that we, we can't be these things unless Christ is in us and we, we're resting in him, resting in his grace. So Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. How do you become poor in spirit? Just look at Jesus, look at yourself, and you go, hmm, that's a real step down. And, and you go, I am poor in spirit. Wow. And so you recognize how spiritually bankrupt you are. And, and remember that Jesus opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, if we compare ourselves to Hitler, to Mussolini and Stalin, or even our next door neighbor, we're always going to come out on top, aren't we? We're always going to go, I'm doing pretty good compared to Hitler. I'm doing pretty good compared to my neighbor, you know? But you compare yourself to Jesus and you go, oh, man. Oh, man, I, I just, I'm, I'm broke. I'm bankrupt. And it's in that moment when you look to him and say, Jesus, I don't, I don't have it. I need you. And then go on to blessed are the mourn. Blessed are the, and and, and when, you, when you become poor in spirit, when you, when you do that, I mean, that helps. That helps you be a good friend. 
if you're poor in spirit. I mean, who wants to be friends with an arrogant, proud donkey, you know? I mean, nobody wants to be friends with someone like that. God can give us humility. And so, same thing with blessed are those who mourn. How do you get happy by mourning? Well, look to Jesus, look at yourself. Know that when you look to him, he's the Savior who suffered for our sins on the cross. He did that because of us. When we mourn, Jesus supplies the comforts we need. But again, who wants to be a friend with somebody who doesn't know how to be sorry over the wrongdoing? Who wants to be friends with somebody who doesn't know how to say, forgive me, or I'm sorry? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is strength under control. You ever around people who are always having to announce how great they are? I mean, I know that we're a little more sophisticated here in our country, and so we do it in more subtle ways. And so, you know, it's kind of like I'm going to do the, the social flex. You know, I'm going to flex my social muscles, or I'm going to flex my business prowess and show how great I am. And, and Jesus says, that's not necessary. Be meek. You're strong. You don't always have to show it off. You know? And, and so, how do you get that? Look at Jesus. Oh, yeah. You're the one who hung on the cross under this Roman execution, and you could have called down all the angels of heaven to release you, but you didn't. That is strength under control. Lord, I don't got that. Could, could you supply some of that of what I don't have? And you can do that with peacemakers, with merciful, pure in heart, all the way down the Beatitudes. And I tell you, this will be a way that can help you learn how to be a good friend to those around you, to be that friend that maybe you aren't now. The good news is that we're not only accepted and forgiven, but Christ lives in us. When you understand that you're accepted as you are, you are forgiven, and that Christ lives in you, I believe that we have the ability to love and accept ourselves with our limitations and faults, and then we're able to then love our neighbors as well. Now, I know that fear can bind many people and keep them from being good friends to others, but faith can instead give us courage to step out. Look, are you realizing that you might have friends, but none of them you can really feel like you can say, that's my good friend, that's my best friend. And if that's the case, then I would think that there's something that you'd want to change, something that you would want to do differently so that there would be someone you could say, yeah, that's my good friend, that's my best friend. And I would think it would have, that change would have something to do with this idea of, I'm going to be that friend. I'm not going to wait for someone to appear on the horizon. I'm not going to have a list and try to match it up against people. Instead, I'm just going to be that person. You know, do you wish that there was someone who would really understand you, knew you, someone who not only sh- you could share your sorrows with, but share your joy and victories with? That's what a friend is about. Has, has fear limited you? Has spiritual laziness limited you? Have you put expectations on people that only Jesus the Savior could really fulfill? How is your friendship with Jesus right now? You know, he is Lord and Savior, but you can, can you also call him good friend? He can be in close proximity. He is safe to confide in. And he's there in unexpected moments to share the highs and the lows. Believe me, he desires to be close to each one of us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. 
you know, maybe we need to learn friendship from Jesus so we can be a better friend to those around us. For those of you who have been doing this, you, you have been trying to be that friend. You've been putting yourself out there. I just want to say, praise God. Don't give up. And, and, I, and, and I know maybe some of you might be running into frustration because it seems like very rare that friendship is returned to you. And I, and I just want to say, don't give up. Don't give up on this noble and true idea of friendship. Keep trying to be that friend. Put yourself out there. And, and I pray that it will be returned. But even if it's never returned, remember the words of this hymn and invite Jesus into that close friendship with you. Because even if we never have that friend that we are to others, Jesus will be. Jesus will be. Would you guys, I would just like to sing this hymn together. And, uh, and then Nate, the guys will come on up here. But this is a moment for us to, to pray about our friendships. It's maybe a time to repent of our crushing blunders. It's a time to seek Jesus to help us in these knowing pains. And I believe that he's, he really is the one who can do it. He knows how to be a friend, and he can teach us how. And he can live within us to give us strength to be this noble and true friend. So let's just sing this in, in, in simplicity. I'm going to see if I can remember the tune. Yeah, help me out. Friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Oh, because we do not care. Everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows bear? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. One more time. Are we weak and heavy laden? Come, but with a load of care. Precious Savior, still our refuge. 
Take it to the Lord in prayer. To thy friends despise or save thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Find your solace there. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand together? Let's uh, worship.